Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith. To get us into today's conversation, I want to read to you a couple of nuggets from a document produced by the Association of American Universities. That's a group that counts Yale among 61 others as members. Nugget number one, quote, the vast majority of private and public universities and colleges are tax-exempt entities as defined by Internal Revenue Code Section 501C3 because of their educational purposes, unquote. Okay, digest that. Now, nugget number two, quote, Income from activities that are substantially related to the purpose of an institution's tax exemption, charitable contributions received, and investment income are not subject to federal income tax. The federal tax code classifies tax-exempt colleges and universities and their foundations as public charities. Now, if you, as a regular, non-college or university-affiliated citizen, hear all of that and don't see an issue, our first guest today says you absolutely should see many issues. He is author and historian Davarian L. Baldwin, the Paul E. Rathier Distinguished Professor of American Studies and founding director of the Smart Cities Lab at Trinity College in Hartford. His latest book is titled, in the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Now, you can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Professor Baldwin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, about that tax-exempt status enjoyed by colleges and universities I referred to a moment ago, I've read about you pointing to that as a powerful example of what you call the public good paradox. What exactly is the public good paradox? Yeah, so we we presume that higher education is an inherent public good, most clearly marked by what you just outlined. It's 501c3 taxes and status because it provides services that would otherwise come from the government, educational services. But this is this is precisely where the paradox emerges. This nonprofit status is precisely what allows for an easier transfer of public dollars into higher education's private developments with little public oversight or scrutiny. And I want to give you a couple of examples. Um, the historically black neighborhood um, of Witherspoon Jackson in New Jersey a couple of years ago realized that their property taxes were going up and yet there were no improvements in their neighborhoods. And they looked around and did some research and realized it's because they were living right next to Princeton University. Princeton University's land, as you as you have outlined, um, their properties are tax exempt. Yet what was going on on these properties was multi-million, some would argue billion dollar research because of their uh, partnerships with the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly. So you have the hoarding of wealth on these tax exempt uh, uh, properties owned by the university because of their partnership with private uh, investors. And yet the burden of those costs 
is being passed on to local residents surrounding the campus. Another example, I just spoke to um, uh, some some uh, politicians in St. Louis reached out to me recently in the uh, town of University City, which is right outside of St. Louis, mm-hmm. argue, asking for me, what, what do we do? What's going on? They realized that uh, the uh, Washington University in St. Louis, they were buying up uh, single family homes in their in their town and converting them into um, individual dorm units, which of course raised the property values of the entire neighborhood because students, because these um, dorms, they could charge more for say putting six or seven kids in a house as compared to charging a single family. Sure. And on top of that, once the university purchased that property, it was taken off the tax rolls. So this small town was getting hit coming and going in terms of rising property values and in terms of the property values not being passed on uh, to the value or to the benefit of the town in property taxes. So these are just two examples of this public good paradox. At the same time, schools also reap the benefits of fire services, snow and trash removal, road maintenance, other municipal services, while shouldering little burden. And again, these costs are passed on to homeowners, uh, small businesses because of inflated property taxes, and also um, it, it gets passed on in terms of skyrocketing rents where residents can no longer afford to live in the areas. So this is what I mean by uh, the public good paradise, where that talk, that property tax um, uh, uh, exemption becomes a financial shelter for universities and their private partners. You know, I think most of us walk around thinking that a college or university's main business is education in exchange for tuition. But again, after reading your work, it occurred to me that maybe a college's main business is real estate and development. Mm. Well, I will tell you a great anecdote. Um, when the residents of Witherspoon Jackson, New Jersey, realized what was going on in the neighborhood, they sued Princeton and won an $18 million lawsuit for property tax relief. Um, one, of the, one of the residents was just so disgusted with what was discovered in their research that he dismissed Princeton as a hedge fund that conducts classes. Wow. <laughs> so, so, all right. So how, so what explains all of this? I mean, if we're being kind, uh, yeah. we call it a blind spot. If we're not being kind, then it's, we call it something, uh, we call it a plot, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, I'm not saying which we should be more kind or less kind, right. but I'm saying those are yeah. two terms we could use. But what, what, what explains the fact that all of us seemed, uh, all of us sort of assume these nonprofit institutions of higher learning, uh, that, 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 uh, what explains this blind spot on the part of legislators and all of us that uh, these colleges and universities, it's okay for them to transfer public dollars into private developments with little oversight? How did we get yeah. here? Great question. So, you know, I love that you, you know, kind or not kind. I'm going to choose to be historical. Uh, because I'm, his, you know, partially his, at least a historian. And so I'll say w- in response to that, um, the tax exempt status, which is the which is the real key here. But there are other policies that we can talk about in a minute as well um, is important. And it goes back that, you know, universities have college universities have been taxed property tax exempt for, for decades. That's not new. What is becoming more critical is in the 1990s, we began to see um, states all over the country contributing less to higher education. Um, pu- both, you know, and let's be clear, both public and private schools receive state funding. But now, you know, to the degree that, you know, in in California, for example, 
uh, the University of California, the, uh, the state of California contributes about 13% of the, of the annual budget to, um, to Berkeley. So it's some argue that it's only, it's a public university only in name. So in response to that, schools have had to figure out ways to become more entrepreneurial is the word they use. So this means air quotes. Uh, le- yeah, very much so. So this means leaning into um, longstanding, you know, gray areas like the property tax exemption. And um, another element to this is in the 1980, there was the passing of the Bayh-Dole Act, where university, and they did this, universities lobbied for the Bayh-Dole Act, which, and, and if you don't know this, most of the drugs and uh, discuss, uh, research that that pr- that produces the discoveries that we have in our homes all, all you know all the time. Um, a lot of that research comes from university research. Most of that is federally funded. Um, it comes from your tax dollars. Um, for decades, because the the, the research uh, the money for that research came from the federal government, um, universities could not take that research and turn it into intellectual property. It had to remain in the public domain. But with the passing of the Bayh-Dole Act, lobby, again, lobbied by universities, um, this gave them the right to take federally funded research and convert it into intellectual property and sell it on the private market. Um, and, 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 the re- and the rewards and the, uh, the revenues that came from that would come back to the university in the form of royalties. So when you combine the tax-exempt status of the campus buildings, with the research that's done in those buildings, this becomes a lucrative political economy. And 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 I, I want to be clear that, you know, many universities felt this is all we could do in the face of shrinking contributions. But the 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 strategy of taking advantage of these policies and lobbying for um, you know, converting public money into private research and development, um, it is nefarious. It, we, we should be calling into question. And it, and it all hides under our presumptions that what schools do, I call it the myth of the schoolhouse, the uh-huh. presumption that what schools do is teach classes. When that is becoming what my, one of my good colleagues calls a, a, a convenient side hustle, that the, the, real, <laughs> the real business of higher education is the, these kinds of uh, investments and for-profit orientations. You know, uh, we've got a, we only have a, a couple minutes left in this segment. I wanted to get to this. Your book touches on New York U, University of Chicago, Ivy League schools like Columbia and Yale. Chapter two zeroes in on your current employer, Trinity College. Number one, how's that going? <laughs> you still working there. But also, yeah, can you discuss yeah. what you found in your research and the ambivalent relationship with Hartford you described that you observed firsthand? Yeah, I mean Trinity is different. Like you mentioned, a lot of the other schools I look at are um, large, uh, private, or public, but larger universities. Trinity is a small New England liberal arts college, like Williams or Bowdoin or Amherst, and it, it positions itself as a, a kind of a pastoral refuge away from the city. Um, but this is how it originally conceived itself—a retreat from urban life. Um, but over the 20th century, with white flight and and financial divestment. Um, urbanization washed over Trinity. Um, it came to this, its, its feet. And so by the time we get to the 90s and 2000s, um, for, for before that, Trinity saw what was happening all around itself, that poverty was was emerging, urbanization was was coming on for, um, and, the, and they turned inward, right? We're an elite liberal arts college of retreat. We'll just, 
we have, you know, um, big name donors and support and alum, we can just turn inward and maintain our reputation that way. But as all this, as Hartford was tra transforming all around them, they began to realize that people were afraid to come to the campus or didn't want to come to the campus. And its reputation got tied to the reputation of Hartford. So by this time period, we begin to see the rise of what was called enlightened self-interest. We'll invest in Hartford to the degree that it benefits our reputation. Um, uh, in the 90s, Evan Dobell, the president at that time, began to um, create and um, invest in, you know, uh, public schools, affordable housing, recreation. He called it Trinity Heights. Um, but the results never matched up to the hype. And so after that, um, Trinity has continued to waver back and forth between direct engagement and its older vision of bucolic elite retreat. We have to hit the pause button right there and pick it up after a short break. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith, in for Lucy Nalpadashal. Again, I'm speaking with Trinity College professor Devarian L. Baldwin about his book titled In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Well, this is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith, in for Lucy Nelpathagel. We continue our conversation now with author, historian, and Trinity College professor Devarian L. Baldwin. His latest book is titled In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. You can join the conversation. Just find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. A recent New York Times magazine feature portrayed the city of New Haven as a home to a bustling art scene that, quote, has emerged both because of and despite its association with Yale University. Now, we're discussing the, quote, public good paradox, a consideration of the social good done by colleges and universities weighed against the tax exemptions they get that put pressure on the budgets of the cities these institutions reside in. Earlier, Professor Baldwin and I discussed what he says is a national trend of the, quote, plundering of cities by colleges and universities. Now, Devarian, let's cast our lens squarely on our own city of New Haven and its relationship with Yale University. You talk about Yale's relentless control of New Haven as one extreme example of how, quote, Colleges and universities come to significantly dictate the terms of urban living, from a city's housing costs and wage ceilings to its health care standards and, and even its policing practices. Can you explain why Yale's relationship with New Haven is such a stark example? 
Yeah, I mean, Yale tells a story, tells in a very American story, um, in the sense that in the '90s and 2000s, we see a shift from um, an industrial economy to what is now being called a knowledge economy. Um, we, uh, and Yale has been quite astute at establishing lucrative relationships with biotech firms to produce jobs and draw commercial revenue. But it's precisely in that moment where former mayor Tony Harp identified a property tax gray area because Yale is the city's biggest landowner with almost 55% of New Haven's taxes and properties. So for New Haven, this means that 40% of the city pays for 100% of the real estate taxes. This undercuts funding for schools and other public works for which the university also benefits. So at the same time, with this growing physical footprint, it also helps make uh, Yale one of New Haven's largest uh, employers, both the university uh, direct the main campus, but also Yale New Haven Hospital. Um, and so this dominance has had a profound effect, not just on the economics, but the governance of the city, whereby, and I saw this in other cases across the country, whereby you find uh, uh, outside developers or interests coming in, and before they even talk to political um, officials, they're talking to Yale officials about, you know, the terms of investment. Um, so, so what we're finding is that there's this growing concentration of wealth and property control at Yale. And then this growing campus footprint is further secured by a private university police force that holds public jurisdiction over the entire city. And we saw the contradictions and the horror of this responsibility, this phenomena um, in 2019 with the false report and then um, police shooting of Stephanie Washington. Um, in 2019, um, when we look at land control, when we look at labor control, when we look at policing, when we look at the, the, the ways in which Yale New Haven Hospital dictates health standards, um, it's not uh, provocative or hyperbolic um, to raise the term, the name that some residents call this phenomenon. They call it Yale Haven. And um, I think it powerfully captures this dynamic. Yeah. And with that police example you mentioned, I mean, so you've got a private, basically a private police force uh, yeah. exerting power over the public. And it's not like, you know, we or anybody else can file a, a, a Freedom of Information Act request <laughs> to find out <laughs> what's going on because they're they were they work for a private comp, uh, private university. Right. That's a great point. So, yes. Yeah, so uh, private in institutions in in our country, according to the law, are protected from Freedom of Information Act laws. In this case, because Yale is private, that exemption gets passed on to its police force. So here you have a private police force, an armed private police force with public jurisdiction without public oversight. Ah. And so this is a phenomenal case that you see in New Haven, that you see on the south side of Chicago, that you see in Cincinnati. Um, and so, you know, for the, for the historians in the room, this might remind you of like a Pinkerton dynamic where you have a private security force uh, uh, securing and protecting the the, uh, the the wealth of a private company. This and, is a phenomenon. And by Pinkerton, you mean the uh, the private security force of the coal mining companies? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. Back in yes, the, sorry. Like the late 1800s, early 1920s. Right. Yes. Okay. And so what you have here is is actually, you know, 
in today's knowledge economy, I've been saying that phrase a couple of times. What I mean by knowledge economy is simply the, the, the reality of the degree to which um, the research and development and the retail and the labor that goes on in uh, universities and related tech and biomedicine companies, mm-hmm. that's become the dominant economy of our of our country. And so with their growing role in the knowledge economy, universities have become our factories and our host communities have become factory towns. Mm. And the point that I want to make in my book is that, you know, on one side, this, you know, they create jobs, they generate innovations. But on the other side, there is a cost for those who live in the shadows. One question about the school's level of financial contribution to New Haven last year by NBC Connecticut, uh, Yale released a statement, and I'm going to read a little bit of that statement at a time. I'm going to parse it out a little bit to give you a chance to respond point by point. First, they say, quote, Yale spends over $700 million annually directly on New Haven. This includes compensation to New Haven residents who work at the university and many programs and initiatives that we support throughout the city, unquote. Your reaction to that? Yeah, the the phrase, they didn't quite say it here, but the phrase that's become, I, I think you mentioned earlier, the American Association of, of Universities. This is a, a, a organization of university professors and administrators. They get together every year. And one phrase that we've seen over and over again in my research and in my advocacy is economic impact, which is basically what that phrase, that, that statement is talking about. That um, phrase or that notion needs to be interrogated at greater depth because what the, the the things that get included under economic impact in some cases are actually coming from the tax exemption provided by host communities. So the very things that universities are celebrating sometimes are are, are actually because as a result of the taxes they aren't paying. So for example, um Yale in particular, uh they have a forty billion dollar endowment. Forty billion with a B. Okay. Capital B. And, Capital B, and that's tax exempt. Okay. Um, Yale, to their credit, pays, they offer a $14 million payment in lieu of taxes. It's the biggest of its kind in the country. So, you know, kudos to that. But let's compare again 40 billion to 14 million. Um, um, the, the, the organization New Haven Rising and related, related organizations have done some computational analysis and have, have assessed the properties owned by Yale and has um, uh, argued that if Yale were, to, if we were to properly assess the properties in that's, that are held and owned by Yale, they would owe $157 million in property taxes. A year, right? A year. And the point here is that, yes, universities and other entities, they do offer services, they offer philanthropy, but this is all extremely undemocratic. Their wealth is propped up by public services, public labor, public resources, and yet it's to their largesse. Yeah, to, they, I mean, the, the, they, to the degree to which they contribute, where they contribute, what they want to contribute. Like supposedly right? the American Revolution, the, the Boston Tea Party was all about taxation without representation. And you, uh, you're right. saying that this is sort of in that vein, right? Well, I would say even more starkly, it's it's a feudal relationship. It's a feudal. These are these are. Uh, uh, many republics these schools and they dictate so they they reap the benefits of exemption as offered by the public and then they get to dictate and then celebrate pat themselves on the back for their decisions about how they will spend this money on the public 
That's under that's under anti-democratic. And I'm in my work and in my advocacy, I'm calling for greater transparency and greater democratic controls over public money, resources and contributions. Okay, well, so this is not about handouts. This is simply this is about democracy. This is about urban democracy. Sure. Yale, the statement that I'm reading, Yale released it in, in early 2021. And since then, the school has entered into an agreement to nearly double its current yearly payments to the city of New Haven over the next five years. Uh, and they say over that span, it will total $135 million. But as you just pointed out, $135 million over five years versus what should be based on their property tax, based on their property holdings, one hundred and Fifty-seven, $57 million dollars annually. annually. Annually, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, it, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny. It almost seems to, it almost seems seems to hit on the on this idea, like D- Dutch author Rutger Bregman famously he mocked a gathering of wealthy industrialists at the World Economic Forum in Davos a few years back for touting how much money uh, they were contributing to chair through to charity through their foundations. Mm. And his pushback was, yeah, but you're still paying far less than you would if you just paid taxes. It seems That's like, right. it seems like your whole issue is a microcosm, a big microcosm, but a microcosm nonetheless of, of the larger issue among the wealthy class in this country of tax avoidance. What do you, and, what do you and, make of that? And, and, and those, those stories are not just parallel. They're connected. So if we look at someone like a Jeff Bezos or Amazon more broadly, you know, they what are they doing? They're creating a head uh, headquarters um, all over. You know, you have countries, I'm sorry, cities begging, uh, making, you know, uh, uh, appeals, p- platforms to get HQ2 to come to their city. They finally decided on a partnership, surprise, surprise, with Virginia Tech in Northern Virginia to build this out. And what this highlights is that when you look at the kind of um, uh, plans, the proposal that cities uh, put together to recruit Amazon to come to their city, it included things like uh, elimination of labor protections, tax exemptions, changing of laws. So basically making these companies independent republics in exchange for that company coming there um, and the major driver for these partnerships is being able to be situated and partner with a university to pass on the tax exemption of the campus land, mm-hmm. to conduct uh, uh, below, you know, a uh, uh, low wage labor in the laboratories with graduate students and researchers, paying them below quality of life costs on their labor. So this is a whole economic dynamic that is not just an example. It's connected to this higher education story because it's central to what I call earlier the knowledge economy. And so this is something that must be looked at, you know, as you pointed out, that the higher education story is a microcosm of a much broader conversation that on these campuses, we're talking about uh, suppressed wages of faculty, service workers, graduate students. We're talking about tax exemptions. We're talking about um, unaccountable policing. We're talking about questionable healthcare practices. So for me, higher education, the notion of the ivory tower is is dead. Some of the major struggles over the future of our democracy are being played out in concentrated form on our America's campuses. Hey, I've got to ask you this. What do you make of the fact that Yale is framing their increased contributions to New Haven as tax relief. Why and why is that significant? Their phrase. Yeah, it's it, it's significant because for years 
when schools offered pilots payment in lieu of taxes, um, they were they the, the focus was on you know being voluntary, philanthropy, giving, using the word gift. Uh, but by naming this as tax relief, what it does, because on one level it's like yes, it's peanuts, you know, uh, uh, fifty million over you know five, fifty two million over six years, as compared to one fifty seven uh, uh, hundred hundred seven million a year, it's peanuts. But the tax relief statement sets a precedent, I believe, for making greater claims down the road that these schools' uh, tax exemption has an adverse uh, negative impact on their host communities. And I think that's important. And also, I mean, you you just real quick, I mean, it's not really a question, it's just sort of a statement. You you mentioned the uh, you mentioned pilot. I know there's there's a pilot program with the state that's supposed to make up some of the difference uh, between mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the amount that a school like Yale contributes and what uh, the city is missing out on uh, on uh, on taxes. And apparently, you know, the pilot program only gives about 30% per year. A pilot program from the state only gives about 30% right. per year of, of, uh, of that shortfall. So, Thirty percent, and then, and because of because of you know uh, budget cuts, and in, in many uh, uh, annual budgets, that program was the first get cut, right. and so for years it's been running under budget. Real quick, you, you are the founding director of the Smart Cities Lab at uh, Trinity College. Tell us about that and uh, your work there. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk about that. Um, the Smart Cities Lab came out of the re- and, and this this answers a bit of your earlier question about how does Trinity feel about the work that I'm doing. Well, first of all, thank God for academic freedom because it allows <laughs> me to, to you know pursue what I want. Um, sure. um, but number two, to their credit, they helped um, uh, fund my Smart Cities Lab, and they've been open to having honest conversations about Trinity um, as a part of this larger national conversation. So, out of my research, I began to say I'm amassing all this research and scholarship that didn't make the book but could be useful to colleagues and cities across the country and so i began to uh, accumulate this database um to kind of hold this information and share it but after the uh the black spring of 2020 and the protests that took place around george floyd brianna taylor amar Arbery, i began to get calls from community groups across the country saying you know what we like what you're doing but we don't want information we we need your advocacy. We need you to come out here and speak to people and to engage and to be transformative. And I was um, happy to help in that conversation. And so out of that, uh, my lab, which in the more broader sense, it researches and consults on best practices for building equitable and just urban communities. Um, but after this call and this and this, you know, ins- insistence that I do more, um, this one of the first projects that I worked on with the with my lab was connecting with New Haven Rising and their uh, Yale Pay Your Fair Share campaign, which is, let's be honest, it's not because of the largesse of Yale. It's because of of, of years, decades even of grassroots social movement working that forced Yale's hand on this voluntary contribution commitment. So working with them in the last two years during the pandemic has been amazing for, for me and for my lab. But on top of that, um, in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, I'm working with the, the labs, working with students, residents, and legislatures to pass bills that would limit university tax exemptions. In Philadelphia, um, we're fighting to preserve low-income housing and in university areas targeted for campus expansion and med tech development. 
in Miami, we're advocating for community use of campus buildings. Um, we're workshopping with the National Clinician Scholars Program to ensure that university hospitals honor their energy and care mandates in exchange for their tax exemptions. Um, we're engaging in wall-to-wall -wall organizing with the American Association of University Professors to ensure that all campus workers are guaranteed living wages and equitable conditions from the faculty down to the service staff. And we're developing with the Humanities Action Lab a national mapping of university-driven urban renewal demolitions um, in the 1950s and 60s of Black and brown communities and the present-day impact of those demolitions on those communities. And we're also collaborating with the Debt Collective to finally secure student debt cancellation. So this has been amazing work. It's been transformative for me. Um, it's it's become, as I said earlier, looking at higher education in a focused way has raised questions around these broader democratic concerns um, about um, intellectual property, affordable housing, uh, equitable equitable policing, um, uh, fair uh, fair labor practices. Um, the universities um, reveal all these issues, and my lab. I've been happy to see my lab sit at the center of these conversations and provide research and resources for communities trying to push back against um, their marginalization in their own cities. Yeah, and I even did for, for our audience's knowledge, if, if you did not know, is Smart Cities, you're also working with uh, Cal Berkeley, which I know they hate to be yeah. called. They, 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 they hate to be called <laughs> Cal Berkeley, the University of California and, uh, right. you, and uh, University of Pennsylvania as well. Uh, yeah. What do you think has the practice of university plundering of their host towns gotten more or less flagrant in these recent years? And I, I say that with an eye towards the idea that, hey, in the 1860s, uh, university plundering came in the form of uh, lands being outright stolen from Native Americans for these so-called mm -hmm. land-grant colleges. That's right. The Morrill Act of 1890, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, you know, some people want to tell the story about, oh, in the 70s, schools were democratic, you had open admissions, et cetera. Um, but first of all, the, the democratic results of higher education in that period was because of massive uh, social movements in the 60s and 70s. Um, I would argue that universities have, you know, my good colleague Craig Wilder would say that, you know, we can look back to the to the colonial era and the early colonial universities like Harvard and, and other schools, the, the foundation for their, their wealth was slavery, was a slave economy. So there, there is there is not some rise and fall narrative that we could hold on to to say the good old days. Universities have been consistently, um, uh, you know, plundering when it, and and have relationships with the economy, with the with capital, with the capital economy, to prop up or to profit. So that's been consistent. What I would say now is happening is that there's more spotlight, there's more visibility, and the bigger difference as well is that the work that goes on at universities has moved to the center of our economy. Where before university was kind of a minor player in, in, in kind of like mainstream capitalism. Now, through the knowledge economy, higher education is the driving force of, of, of capitalism. And so because of that, um, their nefarious practices have been made more visible. Well, I want to end on this. You, you know, there are people listening who are saying out loud or to themselves, well, how would this guy like it if Yale weren't in New Haven? What, what, right. what would be there if Yale wasn't there? I mean, uh, yeah. what? what uh, and what and and they're also asking, what does this guy want? Does he want Yale to to leave? Would he like Yale not to be there? Uh, what, what do you have to say to that thought process? 
That's a great question. Well, there's an old racist joke that goes, what would Yale, what would New Haven be without Yale? And the punchline is Bridgeport, um, I, suggesting that, if, that. Yale, if Yale was in New Haven, it would be like one of the many urban ghetto communities throughout Connecticut that, you know, New Haven needs Yale. I would flip it and say, well, actually, if we consider these issues around taxation and low wage labor, um, that comes primarily from the New Hallville and, and the Dixwell communities to service the, the, the uh, to do the service work at Yale. I would say that Yale needs New Haven. Yale depends on New Haven as much as New Haven depends on Yale. That so much of the low wage labor, the tax exemptions, uh, uh, the the um, the capacity for Yale to bully uh, the city politically um, is the, is the is the grounds for Yale's prosperity. So I'm not I'm not arguing here for the end of universities. I'm arguing for a a new reorganization of higher education for every community I speak to says we don't want we don't want universities to go away. We want them to be responsible. We want them to be transparent. We want them to be in service to the communities that make them possible. We're talking about a reconstruction, a revitalization, a, a belief that another university is possible. And that's the foundation of our work. My work comes not from a hate of universities. It comes from a profound, I'm a professor. It comes from a, a deep and profound love of universities. And to finish that point, universities, their claim to flame, their, their claim to fame, the way in which they brand themselves is solving the most difficult problems faced in the world. So if we take that claim to its logical conclusion, why wouldn't they begin solving the problems in their own backyard? that they have a hand in creating. I believe in that. Well, I, 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 very quick pushback to what you're saying. You're saying, well, they, they need New Haven. Well, it seems to me there are a lot of urban centers around the country that, uh, that have uh, low land values, and they've got $40 billion in the bank. I mean, well, couldn't there be a day where universities with all that money in their endowment could be like sports teams that say, if you don't give us what we want, we'll go to Poughkeepsie or wherever? Well, it's, it's, it's very difficult for schools to move because some of their reputation depends on um, their location. Uh, but yes, that that could happen, which is why we need a national movement. And this is to be argued about in the stadium conversation as well. A national movement that calls for, for, for accountability, for transparency, so that if school if schools threaten that, um, it would be more difficult for them to move. And and. Uh, uh, I just think that's that's the that's the reality that we are going to have to have a come to Jesus moment about the growing power that these entities are holding over our lives, power that in many ways comes from us. This is a conversation needs to have to be had in the stadium conversation, in the uh, Amazon and tech conversation, in the higher education conversation. We're we're coming to an inflection point. What you are saying is that it's all connected. Yes, <laughs> very much so. Uh, well, fascinating conversation. Uh, he is Trinity College professor Devarian L. Baldwin. His book is titled In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. Devarian Baldwin, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Really a pleasure. This is Where We Live. I'm John Henry Smith and for Lucy Nalpotential. After the break, I'll be joined by the research director of Unite Here Local 34 at Yale, who's been organizing Yale to treat the city of New Haven better. You can join in the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be right back. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm John Henry Smith and for Lucy Nalpotential. 
As we continue our conversation about Yale's relationship with the city of New Haven, I welcome to the program Eddie Camp, Research Director of Unite Here, Local 34 at Yale. Eddie, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Did you hear any of our conversation uh, between me and Debarian L. Baldwin, and what were your reactions? I did, and um, I, I thought it was really great. Um, and I think that it was... Um, Devarian said some things that I, I think are just fundamentally true about our relationship and New Haven's relationship with Yale University. Um, it has become a factory town where Yale is the, the dominant factory. Um, and um, we uh, realize that we need to have the community and the unions and the students and the graduate workers all working together um, because it is we need a better partnership with the university. And so that's what we've been focused on over the last few years, both in terms of Yale hiring from New Haven, as well as Yale's uh, financial contribution to New Haven. Um, and I think we've worked closely with uh, Devarian in a variety of actions uh, to call attention to the challenges uh, that the relationship between the university and uh, New Haven present. Um, and I think we've made some progress, but there's still a lot of progress to be made. And just for our listeners, if you could explain exactly, Unite Here, Local 34, 33, and 35, I mean, which, which workers at Yale do you represent? Yeah, so um, I work for Unite Here, Local 34. We represent the clerical and technical workers at the university. Um, Unite Here, Local 35 represents the service and maintenance workers. Um, and then Unite Here, Local 33 is a campaign of graduate workers who are organizing to get recognition um, for the work that they do and, and win a union at um, the university. Um, and so that's sort of the different groups. And then um, we also work very closely with New Haven Rising, which is a community organization um, that has really led the campaigns on both hiring and New Haven, as well as uh, pushing Yale to contribute more to the city. Well, I know that the locals you just talked about in New Haven Rising, you all have done research on the situation in New Haven with regards to Yale. What have you found and what impact has New Haven Rising had on that situation? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that we have a long, long history of working with the university and working with the community and pressing the university to be more accountable to the community. Um, but recently, uh, in 2015, Yale University signed a jobs agreement where they committed to hire a thousand people from New Haven with 500 of those individuals coming from low income neighborhoods in New Haven. Um, and so the most recent campaigns we were gearing up kind of looking at the progress of that agreement that Yale has ma had made um, as the agreement was coming due in 2019. And so then we started looking into kind of New Haven and some of the challenges that the city faces in a little bit more detail. And I think we found some relatively powerful ways to think about both the challenges in New Haven and its relationship with the university. Um, so I think kind of where our campaigns have started with their analysis and framework is we went back to the redlining maps. Um, the one in New Haven was drawn in 1937. So these were maps that were drawn that locked uh, people out of being able to get loans um, and build wealth uh, to buy houses and improve their property. Um, as in New Haven, as across the country, they're often drawn with kind of racist intent. Um, and so we look at that map that was drawn in 1937 and we compare it to the low income map of New Haven today where there's low income neighborhoods. And um, basically every low income neighborhood today was marked as hazardous or declining by the redlining map um, in 1937. So 
we kind of talk about this as 80 years of segregated development um, in our city. And I think that that's a fundamental challenge that we really need the university as a partner on to address. Um, I, I thought as what Devarian said that universities are really organized to solve some of the most complicated challenges um, in the world. I think that this is one challenge that Yale could really be focused on. Um, but you take that a little bit further and you sort of look at current maps today and where the challenges are and you see this pattern emerge where it's basically no matter the challenge that you name it's the same neighborhoods that are getting hit the hardest um so if you look at asthma rates if you look at the location of homicides if you look at um home foreclosures after the great recession it's it's this sort of same pattern that emerges um and i think that sort of striking thing for us is we did all of this research right before the covid pandemic um and we knew before the sort of infection rate maps were even public what the infection rate maps were going to look like. And sure enough, if you compare kind of the home foreclosure map um, after the Great Recession and the COVID-19 map, um, where the infections are the highest, it's it's almost identical. It's, it's really quite striking. Um, one area that we have focused on is kind of the New Hallville-Dixwell Prospect Hill area. That's where Yale Science Park is located. Um, and when Science Park was being developed, it was being developed as to generate economic opportunities for, for those neighborhoods, particularly New Hallville and Dixwell. Um, so New Hallville and Dixwell are largely black uh, neighborhoods. And then Prospect Hill is a neighborhood that's a bit mixed, but it has a lot of um, more wealthy individuals. Um, and it's where a lot of Yale's campus is actually located. Um, all of these neighborhoods share borders, but if you kind of look at them, it's just incredible the inequality between them. There's a 10-year difference in life expectancy between New Hallville and Prospect Hill. And uh, the Opportunity Atlas um, shows that a Black individual who grew up in Dixwell that's now in their 30s has a median income of $24,000, whereas a white individual who grew up in Prospect Hill, remember they share the border, has a median income of $71,000. Um, so these are sort of the problems that we were trying to, that we identified the challenges that I think we need a good partnership with the university to solve. Um, but I think that that partnership really needs quite a bit of work. Um, and so that's where the campaign started to aim is both in terms of pressing the university to hire more individuals from low-income neighborhoods, but also contribute more revenue to the city. Um, and so that's, I think, where we, we ended up um, on the campaign. One of the interesting things that I found, I, I believe I found it on New Haven Rising's website, uh, was a calculator mm. to allow folks to figure out what their home uh, might run them in taxes if Yale paid the same mill rate, which they quite clearly do not. How impactful do you think that's been? Yeah, it's been a really powerful tool to, I mean, I think there has to be a lot of work to help people kind of understand how massive of a tax break this is. Um, Do you have an example as, from a, from a, just a kind of a typical home? Yeah, I actually, um, to prepare for this, looked up my address again. Um, and so I found on, on my own home, I would be paying $2,686 less and we could have the same level of services if yeah, I was paying the same mill rate as, as I was paying on my own home. Um, it's a nice chunk so, of change. Yeah, and that's an annual um, an annual cost, right? Um, potentially, you could think of that as an annual contribution to Yale University that um, I'm making every single year. When you put it like that, that certainly <laughs> that certainly uh, is sobering. Um, early in the hour, we discussed Yale's recent commitment to increase their voluntary contributions to the city. I mean, now they, 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 they say it's going to, they're going to up it to around $23 million per year. What has been the reaction among the community organizers to that? 
Um, so I think that the way we've talked about it is it's a step in the right direction. It's potentially the beginning of a better partnership, but it's one small step um, where there needs to be many taken. Um, and so that's how, how we've talked about it. I will say that on the other hand, you know, um, we are quite proud of the fact that we've been able to move Yale University on this. Um, and I think the thing that is really kind of uh, important to recognize, though, is it took a lot to actually achieve that. Um, this is a campaign that spanned over several years. Um, we've done a variety of different actions to push the university in this direction. Um, that included distributing over a thousand lawn signs across the city that said, Yell respects New Haven. We did a street painting um, where Tavarian actually came to speak, um, comparing Yell's contribution to the city to Yell's endowment, um, which is still there today. And I, I think a, a really good piece of street art. We've had hundreds of people show up to New Haven budget hearings to talk about the challenges. Um, there were citywide meetings. Um, and a variety of different door knocking campaigns across the city. Um, and so it took a lot of effort and sort of that is uh, where we ended up. So I think that um, what we really want is uh, Yale to contribute its fair share. This is one step towards that direction, but but they need to take more. Um, I think the other thing that though was a real victory in that is it also did cause an increase in the college and hospital pilot payment um, that increased by $49 million a year. So. If you combine that with Yale's increased contribution, that's $59 million a year for the budget, um, New Haven's budget, which is a pretty significant increase. I think one of the things about that, though, is that tiered pilot is obviously another form of uh, public money, right? It's coming from the state to cover the um, tax uh, obligations or not the tax obligations because they're exempt, but to cover the gap in revenue gap, um, exactly. from the tax exemptions of Yale University. And not enough. Uh, apparently is coming from that pilot program. Uh, no, and I mean, I think else. that we're still left with the reality where before when we were campaigning, we were talking about $157 million um, tax break to Yale University. And so I think it really comes down to sort of a, a, a moral question that's a, a difficult one, I think, and that is why should a city as poor as New Haven be subsidizing a university as wealthy as Yale? Um, and I think that that is... The question that we kept asking through the campaign, and I think it's a it's a powerful question and a difficult one that Yale leaders need to um, wrestle with, um, because there's obviously these challenges that need to be solved in our city, um, and yet we have a tax exemption and a tax break that goes from New Haven to the university. Well, those respect New Haven signs you mentioned, they're as ubiquitous, and they have been for a few years uh, in New Haven as those food trucks on Long Wharf, so they've certainly made an impact in, in, in that way in terms of awareness. Uh, and the campaign that you mentioned, uh, I am told that we have uh, pictures from that campaign on our website. You can catch it on ctpublic.org. Uh, he is Eddie Camp, Research Director of Unite Here Local 34 at Yale. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And that is all the time we have. Thanks to Katie Pellico, who produced today's show. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm John Henry Smith. Thank you so much for listening. 